Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Tuesday, May 30th, we are studying Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 to 13. In today's text, John sees the Lamb open the seventh seal, which leads to the beginning of the seven angels blowing seven trumpets. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, the Reverend Dr. Adam Philippek. Pastor Philippek serves at Holy Cross and Emmanuel Lutheran Churches, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. He is also the author of the forthcoming book, Life in Christ, Rooted, Woven, and Grafted into God's Story, that is available available from CPH beginning June 6th. Pastor Philippek, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Good to be with you, Pastor Apple, and greetings to our listeners in the name of our crucified, risen, reigning Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who was, who is, and who is to come. Pastor Philippek, as we get started today, talk to us a little bit just generally about the book of Revelation, the way that we should approach it as Christians, and why it's a helpful book to us. Certainly. So I would think that where I need our listeners to remember most is what the fact that we are in the midst of John's vision. I mean, it began earlier in the book of Revelation, and it is apocalyptic literature, so things need to be paid careful attention to. I saw the seven lampstands, which are the seven churches, you know, all of these different things that we had at the start of this book. So remembering some of these key elements at the start of our conversation today is key. So we are continuing John's vision. We are resuming a narrative about the end times, and we need to remember where we left off in chapter six. We had witnessed six of the seven seals being opened, and at that time it had been revealed to John and the church on earth that they would experience, and have experienced rather, and would continue to experience great suffering and persecution until Christ returns. And in fear and in horror at the coming of the end of that opening of the sixth seal, you had a a question of that day of judgment and that day of the wrath of the Lamb, and that was posed to John, who can stand, right? On that day, on the great day of judgment and wrath of the Lamb, who can stand? And John then pushed pause in that narrative to give those who are sealed by that blood of the Lamb and that mark of the cross on their forehead and on that heart, that that seal there, those who are sealed with that, he paused to give them great comfort and hope. And that is a text that's very familiar to us, a text that we love. It comes up every All Saints Day. That 144,000 is a symbolic representation of the multitude that no one can count. Every nation, every tribe, every language, every people. And that question was posed to them who were coming out of the tribulation that John saw. The question was posed to John, uh, who are these in white robes and from where do they come from? John pulled that safe answer, sir, only you know. And he said, these are the ones who have have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Only those who are clothed in the lamb's blood 
can stand before him and not only stand before him, but you have this beautiful image of divine presence where God is going to shelter him, uh, shelter them with his presence, wipe every tear from our eye. And so when they are in terror of the sixth seal opening and that question being posed, who can stand in answer is given. Those who are covered by the blood of the lamb shall stand without fear on judgment day. And that's where we have found ourselves in chapter 7 and then in chapter 8 today we resume the action of the narrative that seventh and final seal being opened and then almost you could consider it a second vision but what i would consider is you get a, a really zoomed in focus is now when the seventh seal is open here we have this a whole complete vision coming in of what this looks like within the seventh seal. So you have a vision within a vision. Some call it a, a second vision going on uh, today, but there's, I, I think that picture-in-picture picture, uh, idea kind of helps us sharpen our, our understanding of this, and our listeners should be anticipating to that. What happens when that seventh seal is open and we see its completion, that fulfillment, that return of the Lamb? What will that be like? So, yeah, and, and this is where uh, you and I were talking before we started today. This is where the book of Revelation really starts to become, I think, less familiar to a lot of us. And it's it's been plenty difficult so far, but I think even more difficult when we get now to the seven trumpets. The seven seals, we, we kind of talked about how in the seven seals, and you, you've, you've brought this out already, those first six that we've seen, you see the, the terror that exists here on earth, the tribulation in which the saints live, and now we're going to see that seventh seal opened, the seven trumpets start to blow as a part of that. And so, I mean, I've, I've seen a number of, of interpretations. One is, is almost like we're seeing the same thing again in different imagery. I, I've heard another one, and this was one I was reading earlier today as I was getting ready for our conversation, that the seven trumpets are, we're going to see less of the natural things that happen and more of the false teachings. Apparently, within the history of the Church, the seven trumpets have been seen as this is the effects of false teaching in the earth, which I, I find intriguing. And, and if I'm understanding you right, it sounds like maybe we're going to even see now another possibility is that this seventh seal being opened leading to the seven trumpets is going to zoom us in more on what's going to happen toward that, that last day, which was what the sixth seal. Is that kind of where you're taking us more? That's where I'm I'm taking you more that 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 sixth seal is the anticipatory aspect of the return of the lamb and now we get that return of the lamb and that return of the lamb that that end time that we're caught in that picture in picture is an eye on the cross and the empty tomb where it began the ascension into heaven where the end times begin on into that final and last day. And so the rest of the book of Revelation is caught in that time period. Actually, the whole book is caught there, but I think you get a really intense focus on here now at, that, that Jesus has died, Jesus has risen and promised to come again after ascending. The, this aspect of he is coming and all of this is happening. I mean, it's all unfolding and collapsing together all at once on itself. So yeah, and I, I'm, I'm very sympathetic. I know uh, to the natural aspect of this, and supernatural in the division, and you've named a couple, but I mean, two of the big commentators on this uh, early church is Bede, right? His his whole commentary and explanation of the apocalypse, and then also Gerhard, our Lutheran father, does a lot with this. I mean, we the, Brighton and our our modern Lutheran father. I mean, you have a lot of a, a lot of ink spilled on this, right? Sure, and so we get to add our voices to the to the mix a little bit today, hopefully echoing the, the most faithful of that. 
just thinking about the book before we dig into this text specifically, and, and knowing that that your book that's coming out kind of deals with the whole narrative of the scriptures and how we fit into it. And well, I don't know. I haven't read the book yet because it's not out publicly yet. But does like does Revelation chapter eight fit into that? And and if so, and maybe maybe it's not one you reference in your book. But I am curious how a text like this does fit into that whole narrative and then how we fit into that, at least just kind of by way of general comments on this chapter, before we try to dig into some, some more difficult text here. Absolutely. Well, obviously, since it's a sweep from Genesis to Revelation, which you don't have preview to, the book of Revelation does get incorporated into it. But because of the scope of it all, I don't have a chapter-by-chapter, verse-by-verse walkthrough like we do. We tell the whole narrative, and it, this fits in beautifully piggybacking off of seven and the whole understanding of Revelation, what happens post-ascension and pre-resurrection of all flesh, and then at the resurrection of all flesh when Jesus comes. In my book, I call this, you're caught in the middle. You're living in the middle. You know the end of the story. You know what awaits you, and yet you're just not there yet. So you live in this middle post-ascension, pre-resurrection of all flesh in the midst of suffering, and the narrative is still the same. The focus of the whole narrative is on divine presence. I'll, I'll talk about this through book real quick, but then also into Revelation 7, because this flows very, very nicely. The whole idea of this narrative has always been, since the, the start of the, the chapter, God with his people, God desiring to dwell with his people, right? And then in Genesis 3, we lose that. When Adam and his wife, his wife first, and then gives the fruit to her husband who was with her, eats of that, and then we lose that divine presence. They're kicked out of the garden. They used to hear God walking in the cool of the day. The rest of the Old Testament is spent, where is this, this promised child who's going to crush the head of the serpent and give us back the presence of God? So the promised land is all about the presence of God and dwelling with God in safety and security. Well, you see that throughout the Old Testament. In, in the New Testament, you have this little switch. Here is this promised child. His name is Jesus. He has come to head, crush the head of the serpent. And there in his flesh, he is restoring to us the presence of God. But when he ascends, you're caught back in the middle, right? Like, where is this promised child, Jesus, who has crushed the head of the serpent and will come again to, to restore to us the promise, the promised land, the very presence of God. So this presence of God that was spoken of in the in Revelation chapter 7, that he will shelter them with his presence. And at the end of Revelation 21, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. This is the whole thrust of the, of the divine narrative, uh, the, the focal point of God dwelling again with this people. And how does he do that? Well, the reconciliation through the, through the blood of the lamb, you see that aspect very poignantly and very clearly in Revelation 7 at the end of the narrative. We see this most commonly, though I, I would argue we're, we're very good at forgiveness of sins as Lutherans, which is really, really good, right? Because that's, that's one of the hearts of this. But we tend to stop short, and this is part of the reason for the book, we tend to stop short of, of the larger goal of that. The, why did Jesus die? For forgiveness of sins. Yes, he has redeemed me a lost and condemned person to Purchase one me not with perishable things such as gold or silver, but with his holy precious blood, innocent suffering, and bitter death. But we lose the fact that why has he done it? That third paragraph, that I may be his own and live with him or under him in his kingdom. And that's really where this narrative is going, that we live under God in his presence. No more suffering, no more illness, no more pain. We, we rise in glory in our bodies imperishable. 
Totally yeah, and that, that's a that's a great thing for us to keep in mind. As we read a difficult text, one that will have destruction as a part of it, it's good for us to keep that in mind, this going toward living in the presence of the Lord. So we are in Revelation chapter 8 this morning, beginning at verse 1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense, with the prayers of the saints, rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet. And there followed hail and fire, mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain, burning with fire, was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night." Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth, at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. It's our text for today. That's Revelation 8, verses 1 to 13. So, Pastor Philip, as you said, we're picking up the narrative of the seals yet again after that interlude in chapter 7. And now the one seal that's left to open is the seventh. The Lamb opens it, and there's silence in heaven for half an hour. Talk just about that silence in the half an hour. What's going on here? Yeah, so that seventh seal, following the talk of the sixth seal, that great day of the Lamb's wrath. Well, here it is in that seventh seal. We have this aspect of the lamb himself opening that seal. And when that is open, you said there is this silence. Now, this silence, I would see it as kind of a twofold thing that's going on. The opening of the seal, that second coming of Christ, that that end of the world, the beginning in the end sort of thing. Uh, The Lord of heaven and earth is descending in his radiant and magnificent glory. And when you see God in all his glory, when you see something like that, It is awe-inspiring, and to see God is to just marvel in wonder. So that's the first aspect of that. You see him, the lamb, in that glory, and and he takes your breath away. And as you see him, you wait. Like, what's he going to do? Like, it's it's kind of a twofold thing. You see him, and you're silent, and then you're waiting. Like, what's going to happen? Like, this is... This he is glorious, he is beyond comparison, and yet now he is coming. But what is he coming for? What's going on here? What are we doing? And you're waiting with that eager anticipation for what is about to happen. So, the best analogy I can think of, perhaps, to give you is uh, 
and I would love to give a sports analogy. You know, that's my little thing. But usually when a team comes out, you know, you're cheering and all that sort of stuff in the Grand Majesty. No, this is this is awestruck silence. So what I would, the best analogy I'd have for you is to think of a symphony. If you've ever been to a symphony or a music concert, something like that, where all of a sudden, you know, people are chatting, they're carrying on and things like that. Life is, life is normal. And then all of a sudden you have the lights dim and you have this spotlight focus on the stage and suddenly there's a hush in the crowd because all are anticipating and wondering and you see the musicians come out and you see them take their place in all of their tuxedos and dresses and all this sort of stuff and you see the conductor last of all and the conductor all of a sudden puts his baton in the air and he hangs there for a moment and that's what I would say this is like that you you are seeing this grand thing unfolding before your eyes and you're waiting for that baton to drop what is going to happen What's this sweet music? What's what's about to occur? And that's where where we see this silence coming from from the sheer majesty of God and, and viewing the Lamb, and then also what is the what is He going to do? What's He going to say? And so they're waiting, waiting for that that revelation of glory. Yeah, and I think I think the comparison to a symphony and orchestra is helpful, especially because what we're about to see are seven trumpets being blown. And I I think there is that there is that sense of contrast here that there is this silence, this waiting before that music plays. And it's, well, it's, it's maybe a different sort of music than, than we're expecting. The, the music is going to be rather terrible, as we will see. So we've got in verse 2 then, after John hears this silence, he sees seven angels standing before God, and there are seven trumpets given to them. So talk about these seven angels and their seven trumpets. I am struck every time I read the narrative of Scripture, just how our God works in very similar ways. I'm going to come back to this multiple times, but here, seven trumpets. That sounds familiar. I've heard that before. In the Old Testament, my mind goes to the battle of Jericho, right? Joshua and the battle of Jericho, the seven priests are given the seven ram's horns, the trumpets to go before the ark. And on the seventh day, you're going to march around the city seven times, that whole number of completion and perfection of God's work and beauty. And the priests are going to blow that trumpet, right? So the point then of all of that is, is, is Joshua was giving those seven trumpets to the priest to sound, they, they were to sound them for a particular purpose so that the walls of their enemies might collapse and that they might enter into the promised land to dwell with God. And see, at the start of this, we asked about the narrative and divine presence. This is what this is really about, that aspect of, of inheriting that land in which God will dwell with his people. He will at last be their God and they will be his people. So now when they enter that land, they're going to dwell with God in Joshua's day in that whole aspect of veiled in the tabernacle, hidden behind that curtain. Um, but now Jesus himself is having those angels sound the trumpets so forever. And at long last, the end is now going to be begun in this reign of God to bring down the walls of our enemies of sin and death at this close of the age. And in order to bring God's people, his church, which he obtained with his own blood into the land that he may, I know, spoiler alert, Revelation 21 and 22, right? Dwell with his people. 
and be their God, wiping every tear from their eyes. We just got this in seven, that aspect so that he might shelter them with his presence and no sun or moon, no, no evil, no sin, no death shall ever befall them again. So this is about that face-to-face dwelling with the presence of God, bringing down the walls of the enemies. So I, I think the connection to Jericho is very helpful, especially with the trumpets. Uh, another thing that I saw concerning the trumpets as I was reading, uh, a lot of commentators apparently will connect the trumpets to the, the reign of kings. You, you mm-hmm. see trumpets being blown when, when kings are crowned. And as you and I are recording this, we're about a, we're a week ahead of the, the Festival of the Ascension. Yeah. And the, the psalm for the Ascension, God has gone up with the shout, the Lord amid sounding of trumpets. So thinking about the, the crowning of the king, which we saw, the, the lamb who was slain began his reign in chapter 5, that, that thought, and then connected to that with the defeat of the enemy so that God would welcome us into his presence. I think that's really going to connect to the, the what we're going to see when these trumpets are blown, the defeat of the enemies, especially with the connection. I, I know we'll talk about the plagues, I'm thinking, with the plagues against Egypt will come up with the trumpets and what happens. So there's a lot of connections there as, as we get going here with these seven angels giving having these seven trumpets being ready to be blown. But before those trumpets are blown, in verse 3, we have another angel who comes. He stands at the altar. He's got a golden censer with incense. What's going on with this other angel that shows up in verse 3? I, I like this. So you have this, this, um, this other angel, and I think I, I view this very, very closely in connection with a kind of a zooming in of what's going on with with the lamb opening that seal and very very intimate connection with the lamb a uh, gerhardt uh and and bead commentators lutheran fathers and early christian fathers were were very clear to point to malachi 3 verse 1 uh to have their hearers connect this with behold i will send my angel um angelos or you know that that whole messenger um you can translate it either way. I will send my messenger, my angel ahead, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And you know that, notice that temple, that offering, that sacrifice imagery in the presence of God in this one. And the messenger of a covenant in whom you will del- delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, when you start talking about angels in, all, in the Old Testament, You've got to pay attention to your, we would call them in English, direct articles and indirect articles. In angel of the Lord versus the angel of the Lord. And when you start looking at other angels and how this is working and what this angel is particularly doing, he's commanding them to do certain things. Um, and we'll get to, to, to the work of the angel. I don't want to give away too much uh, in, in the midst of this, but this is a very reminiscent of Exodus 3, uh, when the angel of the Lord appears to Moses in the flame of fire out of the midst of the bush, it says, uh, he looked and behold, the bush was burning up. Moses looked and yet it was not consumed. And in verse four of chapter three, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. And he said, I am the the Lord, the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. And if you are paying careful attention to that language, the angel of the Lord connects to the one in the bush. And the one in the bush speaks to I am the God of Abraham, the God of... So he's afraid to look at the one in the bush, God himself, right? So the angel of the Lord is 
is that God himself? And then you get the action. What is what is going on then with God himself, that angel of the Lord? Well, in verse 3, it's that altar, that censer, that incense, that, that offering of the prayers of all the saints, and that offering that connects very, very closely to 1 Timothy 2, um, 5 through 6, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ who gave himself as a ransom. Notice that offering language, that great high priest who offered himself as the lamb. He's the high priest. He's the lamb. He's that mediator, that that go-between between God and man. And what is he doing now, risen from the dead after he was crucified and risen? What is he about? Well, Romans, St. Paul tells us that Christ Jesus, the one who died more than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, is interceding for us. So you see this offering of the prayers on behalf of the people. You see this mediation between the saints of God and, and God himself. And who's doing it? Well, the one, the only one who can do it, the mediator himself, the God-man, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, so we would see this very much in connection at, uh, with the Lamb, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So just to, to make this, this clear, because this is something that you will see commentators say, and I, I think there's potentially something here. This another angel in verse 3 there is a possibility that we should see this other angel not as an angel in the sense of a created being, a heavenly messenger, like the first, the seven angels, I think we would say in, in verse two, mm-hmm. but that this other angel potentially is is Christ himself. That's that's the way you're taking this, right? That's the way I'm taking this, uh, definitely. And not just me, but we have some um, Christian commentators on this, Lutheran fathers on this. Bede talks about this in, in his examination of the apoc- apocalyptic literature. Um, he talks about uh, it this way. When Christ offered himself to the Lord as an agreeable and acceptable sacrifice, he made the sorrow of the hearts of the saints acceptable, which rising from the fire within elicits tears as usual with smoke. So he's connecting that that Jesus who offers himself as the one who mediates and offers those prayers. Now, Gerhardt, one of our Lutheran fathers, adds, the incense given to Christ indicates that Christ did not only offer himself to the Heavenly Father once for all, that great high priest lamb I was just connection, talking about in connection with that, he not only offered himself once on the altar of the cross to the Father as a sweet-smelling aroma, but now he still intercedes for all believers to his Father in heaven by virtue of that merit, offering the, the prayers of the saints to God. That is, he renders them, believers and their prayers, favorable and acceptable to the Father. So there's, there's a whole history of, of Christians who very much see this in connection with the work of God. Uh, the way that we would be most comfortable talking about this mediation, the way that we would see this most is perhaps in our in our Sunday prayers when we talk about in the midst of prayer, we say, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, that through Jesus is the mediation, right? The Spirit, by the Spirit, through the Son, to the Father is how we would we would say that. So that that through Jesus Christ our Lord and that Hebrews echoing um, 
that whole Hebrews 10 echoing that uh, we have the confidence to enter into that holy place by the blood of Jesus. Yeah. 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 The blood of Jesus is what gives us that confidence to enter into the holy place. He is our mediator between God and men. We're going to keep looking at this text from Revelation 8 on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Adam Philippek this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, May 30th. We're studying Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 to 13 with Pastor Adam Filipek. He serves at Holy Cross and Emmanuel Lutheran Churches, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. Pastor Filipek, prior to the break, we were talking about verse 3, this next angel, another angel who comes and stands at the altar with the golden censer. And you were making the point, the way that this angel acts, the fact that he has this incense that is offered with the prayers of the saints— this incense carrying the, the prayers of the saints, making the prayers of the saints acceptable, this connects us to the work of Christ so that we might see this angel actually not as a created being, but as the Lord Jesus, the one who is our mediator between God and man. And just as, as a, a bit of an aside, if this seems surprising, I think the connection that you made to the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is very helpful. And, and also, just as a preview, when we get to Revelation 10, there's going to be another, this one's going to be a mighty angel that's going to share some characteristics that have made some Christians in the history of the Church think that it's not a created being, but again, we're talking about Christ. So perhaps that's what we're seeing here in Revelation 8, verse 3. The, the incense is going up with the prayers of the saints. It's rising before God from the hand of this angel. Then in verse 5, and this is where things start to take a turn back toward those trumpets and what this music that's going to play is going to sound like, the angel now takes this censer that has been filled with incense and the prayers of the saints going up. Now he's filling it with fire from the altar and throwing it on the earth and and destruction starts. So so take us into the action of this, again, other angel in verse 5 and the fire that he starts to throw onto the earth. Absolutely. And well done and succinctly put at, at the start of this uh, recap. That's exactly what I was saying. And so that action continues, and that action is an offering of the prayers of the saints, but it's also a judgment being thrown on the earth. What is about to be revealed? And here comes the picture in picture that I had said, or the the breaking open of a second vision, as, as some commentators talk about it in, in Revelation, is this aspect that God's going to provide an answer, a very long answer, I would argue. We're going to get, yes, a section of, of, I think it's 8 through 11 here, but I I would say the full answer comes about at the end of 22, that this is the the whole second half of the book here is is this answer to the, the, the prayers of God's people throughout the ages that have so fervently cried, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, right? And thy kingdom come, 
We know very much that, that how is God, how does the kingdom of God come? Uh, what is the kingdom of God? And I think, you know, we, we love to do the power, grace, and glory thing in the catechism, and that's not wrong um, in our question and answer, but I think it's more helpful to see that the kingdom is spoken of throughout the Gospels as Jesus Christ. The kingdom is at hand, repent. So the question is, how does Jesus come to us? Well, here in time, it's word and sacrament. That's divine presence. But there again in the last day, like, how are you going to deliver us from this evil one? So God's promise in Christ are about to unfold in this picture in picture, this second vision, how he's going to judge um, the, the things that he's toppling down, the, the sin, the evils of this world, the suffering, the death. This answer is going to come about and in, in this next part, it's going to be interesting because it, it's really, as you said, I'm going to have a lot of fun with you with, uh, like, where do commentators and things go with this? Because we've got this natural aspect, or is this a supernatural aspect? And how this all works, works itself out. But this, this verse 6 um, is going to be this change, the coming of the kingdom of God, this beginning of the end, the return of the Lamb that is going to unfold until finally God's people are forever with him. And from this point on, like I said, the rest of that book is, is seeing how God's going to return, be present uh, until the last day, and the Lamb's wrath is unfolding before our eyes. Uh, but God's people can stand firm. They are still seven, which is why I love that that kind of hinge place. They are still the ones who stand firm because they are covered with the blood of the Lamb it has been sneered up, smeared out, I will I will just precursor this, on the doorposts and on the lintels of the cross, right? It has been smeared out so that it may be placed upon us, that mark, so that we are spared from the wrath of God that is to be revealed here in these in these seven trumpets that are that are now about to be upon us. Uh, that is going to spare God's people from the ultimate judgment. They will pass over from death and destruction to life and God's presence. Before we talk about the the seven or the the four trumpets that we have in our text today of the seven, that last part of verse 5 when the, the this other angel throws the fire on the earth and there's then there's the peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning and earthquake. When I read that my mind goes to Mount Sinai. What what's the connection there? What's the what's the point of the the sounds, the sights there as the fire gets thrown before the trumpets sound. I think this is a beautiful connection to make it with verse 1 and the awe-inspiring aspect of that and what God does, because when the people of God come to the holy mountain and they actually see for a moment the presence of God veiled in the in the pillar of cloud that is on the mountain, and you see the thunder, and you see the flashes of lightning in God's presence— they're terrified. In fact, they're so terrified because a sinner can't stand in the presence of a holy God and live. Um, they are so terrified that they ask Moses to speak uh, for them, to mediate for them. But the saints don't have that, uh, the same type of fear. Yeah, as we'll see in 9, uh, especially, there's going to be this, this real stark emphasis on the last three trumpets that none of this judgment here, this latter judgment, will befall God's people. They will be spared. They are sealed. You're going to see that in 9. We're not going to get to that today, but the, especially I would say those last three is where God is really going to, to, to spare them. But that's thunder, that lightning, that flashing, that judgment of God upon sin, it's all there at Sinai, and it's here in, in his return. 
So the rest of our text then, verses 7 to, well, really 7 to 12, that gives us the first four trumpets. And there's plenty of details within each one, and, and we can talk about that as they come up, but maybe let's try to think about these as a, as a whole, some of the things that maybe we can say with a little more certainty than, than others. Uh, one of the connections I think that, that we should make right away is the connection to the ten plagues. It, it seems that each of these trumpets, when they blow, something happens that sounds a lot like what happened in, what, Exodus 6 through 10 or so, 6 through 12. Talk about some of those connections to the ten plagues against Egypt and what that might mean for our understanding of these of what's happening with these trumpets. Absolutely. As we talked about with Jericho, and I made that comment that God is remarkably consistent in how he works, we see God working in a very similar way. The plagues of Egypt had five purposes. I, got, I have a little chart for you in the book and all that and what those are. But one of those things are, are the judgments of the gods and the idolatry of the people, that God is going to execute his judgment and wrath on his enemies. And then when he does that, they will know that I am the Lord. That's the repetitive phrase in the plagues. And some of the plagues that you see accompanying God's judgment uh, there in Exodus accompany God's judgment here at the end times. Uh, and that's one of the greatest things to see is the continuity of God's working through the old and in New Testaments together. And so in the Old Testament narrative, you see how God's people in that Exodus narrative, how God's people were freed from their slavery to the enemy and the Egyptians. How? Eventually by the blood of the lamb, but not before executing those 10 plagues. And some of the executing judgments uh, included rivers turning to blood, hail, darkness. I mean, those are the, the few to name today, and there'll be more as you go through in chapter 9, but in Revelation 8, at the beginning of the return and the judgment at the end times, we see that same type of judgment appear. We see the first four trumpets sound, and it's reminiscent, reminiscent of that Exodus narrative from from uh, six to ten there of the different, those, those three different ones that I named specifically today, the rivers to blood, the hail, and the darkness. Though I give, gave them a little out of order, I gave the Exodus ordering, you'll see that a little different ordering today of those things. But when you walk through those first, uh, those first uh, four trumpets, you should notice that connection. So noticing that connection then, and this is where I, I'm curious as, as to your thoughts, the what that connection might might mean. As you were talking about the judgment of the gods and the fact that through those plagues, the Lord intended the people of Egypt to know that he's the Lord, it strikes me that that might be one of the things that we need to, to get from these four trumpets. And I think it will come through a little more clearly when we get to chapter 9 in the next episode, that part of what the Lord is doing through these trumpets is, it's not just the matter of bringing destruction, but it is a call to repentance. That when the Lord brings this judgment upon his enemies, it's not only, again, the, the judgment such that if they do not turn, they will be, that'll be the end, and that's their eternal end, but there is, there's a call to repentance within these. Now, again, we're going to find out more in chapter 9 about how it's heard, but I think that, that may be one thing, at least, the connection to the plagues might teach us about these trumpets. Absolutely. I think this is this is very much emphasized in the fact that with every single trumpet being sounded, 
and they're following the first one that hail and fire and mix of blood and it's thrown upon the earth. You then have this repetition of a third of the earth on all of these plagues, a third of the earth, which indicates not a totality. It's not yet the full end. It's the beginning of the end. And so um, you have this almost slow motion, if you will, of all of the different events at the end as they're coming and um, our Lord returning. And so you kind of get this slow motion. Here's the beginning of the end and the rest of the Revelation uh, sections walk through until the end when everything is forever judged and all is done. But that third here represents that, the, the, the beginning of the end and that partial destruction, not a total destruction. And so in that, you see the various aspects that are geared toward what they were geared toward with Pharaoh. You know, we often say, oh, Pharaoh had, you often hear Christians say, not we say, um, but you often hear Christians say that, you know, that with the hardness of Pharaoh's heart somehow, that he didn't have any choice in the matter and it, or something like that, right? But you see that through all of this, God's going to do a sign and a wonder, even for Pharaoh. And that sign and a wonder stands for a particular purpose. One is judgment, but the other section of that too is that they will know that I am the Lord. And knowing that I am the Lord, they will actually repent of their sin in turn. It's not like Pharaoh didn't have opportunity to be turn somehow. He saw the signs. He saw the wonders. God didn't cease doing that. God just knew that no matter what he was going to do, he knew what Pharaoh had decided in his own heart. And so, you know, that the, the first sections of that plague is like, oh, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. But then when you get to the latter half, it's like, well, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Well, what does that mean? It, it's that same thing of a Romans 1. He gave him over to the passions of, like, fine, I know what you're going to do already. Kind of like you tell him a, a kid, now this is a bad analogy because it's a kid. Like, you know that if you do not pick up this room, you know what I am going to do. And I know you're just going to go on playing. So fine, you do what you want to do. But at the end of the day, you know you're going to be in timeout and this room is going to be clean, right? So, I mean, just knowing what you're going to do is not that, that cause. God is still calling to Pharaoh in those signs repent and he will be calling to these people and i think you're right in nine you're going to see the stark reaction of many who are like pharaoh who see that and just reject it but here this these signs show um that there's 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 opportunity still for repentance and that in these signs you should take heed lest you fall yeah and i, I think i mean i think that connection to the plagues then also differentiates the trumpets a little bit from the seals at least the way that I, I read the seals in chapter six was that the the natural things that happen the the war the famine the death this happens to all people and Christians are called to persevere to remain faithful you know to keep praying how long O Lord and to trust again in, in the the reality that's revealed in in chapter seven in chapters eight and nine with the trumpets it does at least again with the connection to the plagues especially it seems that these are given. Uh, more toward the calling of unbelievers to repentance. Uh, and similar, and again, I know it's, it's not a perfect one-to-one with the plagues that we're, we're connecting to, particularly in chapter 8, but in many of the plagues, particularly I think it's starting after plague 4 or with plague 4, they don't affect Israel like they do Egypt. And, and I think that's one way to maybe differentiate a little bit between the seals and the trumpets, that these are more calls to repentance for the unbelieving world, 
Christians are going to be protected from them. Again, we're going to see that more in chapter 9, but maybe one way to differentiate a little bit as to, to these two sets of visions that we're getting here in Revelation. I think that is helpful. I'm always torn on this chapter, to be honest with you, uh, and, and in the next chapter, because I do see the seven trumpets as distinct, but we don't really get that protection like the plagues. Right. We don't really get that protection until we get to the fifth trumpet. Then it's made explicit. But you could argue at the end of nine that these are all the plagues in, incorporated. So I'm sort of sympathetic as well to the to the aspect that the first four, you're just going to have. And you're going to have until that last word of God is spoken. Even upon his return, there's, there's just... You're, People are going to be experiencing this because this is not yet the end, but there's going to be an intensification here. And that those last three trumpets uh, are particularly God saying, you know, the, and here's here's where I'm going to, to focus today. The first four might be very much natural. And this is where our, our conversation might get into gonna... about other commentators. Like these first yeah. four are kind of actual natural occurrences, elements of the earth. You can read them if you want to, and, and others do uh, in a spiritual aspect. Versus an intensification then from here's the natural things where it just affects people at all times, even in the end. But then there's these last three that are an intensification to the demonic woes, a, a, a shift to the intense spiritual persecution. So I, I kind of use the, I, I would think like almost not body and soul distinction, but natural mm. and then spiritual attack. Natural being just the elements of the world, not like we would think of things. But yeah, you're wrong. Well, and that's and that's the hard part about this chapter and, and the next together is to how how to take these because on the one hand, as you look at what's what's happening with the trumpets, and you have things happening with with hail and fire, blood, things happening with the the sun, the moon, the stars. We've heard about some of things with the sun and the moon and the stars, and, and so you you wonder is is this more of the same you know, natural occurrences that we're talking about? Or is this is this a matter of you know as as I mentioned I know several church fathers took this in a direction of the trumpets are talking more about the effect of false teaching and so we're we're speaking very symbolically here that that the effects of false teaching on the earth are are terrible that's true I mean we shouldn't forget that that the effects of false teaching are terrible the question is is Revelation eight and nine talking about that that's where it's maybe a little bit harder to to ascertain. But there, there may be something to that. What, what you were saying about the, again, the connection to the plagues and the judgments of the gods that's inherent there does make me wonder if, if maybe there is something to the matter that we're looking at false teaching and, and how awful it is here. But again, I don't, I don't know. Sometimes it, it seems like it's the last commentator I read as to, to which way I start to lean when it comes to these chapters. <laughs> and it's a hard thing because, like I said, like you said, and like I, I have mentioned before, commentators are all over the place in this. It's either natural or in, in some of these latter ones when you get to like the fourth and the, and the, the lights and the darkening there of the lights, uh, you, you end up in, in almost this aspect that there are false prophets who are darkening the gospel and the preaching of the gospel and yeah. some of the commentators. So you have this aspect of the church is given this light, this trumpet to sound, just like those seven angels at the beginning, you would see them as one, you know, sounding of the trumpets. And, and that there are some who are just dimming that and, and causing all kinds of chaos where there should be yeah. clarity of the message. Yeah. And another, another, I mean, one of the other places that I, I found fairly, I think it's an a, a appropriate comment 
is that in what we've seen in the seal so far, when you compare that to what Jesus identifies in like Matthew 24 or Mark 13 about things that happened before the destruction of Jerusalem, some of those, you know, the wars, the rumors of wars, the earthquakes, you see that all in the seals. One thing that you don't really see in the seals as explicitly, it seems, is the matter of false Christs, of false teaching, which then, if if that is kind of the way that John is seeing things here that's being revealed to him, then maybe the trumpets are identifying those false Christs, that false teaching that Jesus talks about in his discourse toward the end of the Gospels. That's just another piece of information that I found, like, well, that makes sense to me. Yeah, Bede and Gerhard go there um, yeah. a lot on these sorts of things. So you're you're not uh, outside of any <laughs> company of, sure. of those who have gone before us. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a hard wrestling because it is a pocket elliptic literature. It's a different type of literature than, than the narratives of the gospel that are so straightforward or the narratives uh, in in Genesis and Exodus, things like that, you know, it, Chronicles and Kings. It's just, yeah, it's That's a right. little bit different. That's right. Now, the, the last verse of our text, verse 13, which is perhaps a bit of a transition in the, you really could read it with chapter 9 or at the end of 8, we see an eagle that's crying out, and this eagle says, if you think these four were bad, uh, wait until the next three. So so talk about this eagle and the message that he brings that's going to lead us into chapter 9. Sure. So just by way of my own understanding of this, and, and echoing those who have gone before me too, I tend to take um, 7 through 12 as that aspect that as these things are going on, um, you're going to have uh, polluted water and crops that are gone. A third of the, the vegetation of the earth is not going to produce in any given thing, or, or water. So you get these natural events, and, and everyone's standing around like you were in the plagues thinking, this is the finger of God, you know, aspect of, of that from the plagues. But then you get this voice of the eagle. And it's very strange because I don't know what to do with the eagle. I'm just going to be honest with you. Uh, there are very few mentions of eagles in the narrative aspect of that. I mean, even, even the angels, who are the angels? We have very few references to those. The angels aren't the focus. I mean, you have in the Apocrypha, like in Tobit, you have Raphael being identified as one of those seven angels here of the sounding of the seven trumpets. I mean, you have these sorts of things, but that's not the, the focus of Scripture. So I'm not sure who that eagle is exactly, to be honest with you. And I, every commentator that I read doesn't really have an answer for that. But the focus is not on the eagle himself, but the message in this. And the message is a threefold, three last trumpets to go. And here's how I would take it. One woe for each trumpet. Woe, woe, woe. And that is a stark thing, because if you know anything about the use of the word woe in the Old Testament, it, it's not, uh, I'm having a bad day. Like, woe to me, I have a flat tire on the side of the road sort of thing, right? <laughs> no, woe was, to use the most poignant of woes, Isaiah in the temple, peering in into his vision, woe to me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord, the King of hosts. Woe is very much associated with the word synonyms of death. Death to me. Destruction to me. Um, whoa, whoa, whoa. So it's almost, almost this. <laughs> the voice, that eagle's voice makes this much clear, even though I can't tell you who the eagle is. You think this is bad. These four plagues are bad. The worst is yet to come. 
Wait till you hear the three other blasts and what they bring. And each one of these trumpet blasts again serves as that wake-up call. And I would I would say, for me, I matrix this very, very closely to Luke 21, 28. Now, when these things begin to take place, notice you see the end and that return there. When these things begin to take place, straighten up, i.e. repent and raise up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And I would say very much um, that in these next three plagues, that's kind of why I make that division as well, following the plagues of this first four plagues could, I would say, affect um, even the believers, but um, the last three won't. And we're very clear about, like the plagues of Egypt, there's some that affect it. And then God said in the, the remaining plagues, no, this is not happening to my people. And even in that final judgment where God says, at the end, I'm going to pass through all the land and I will kill all firstborn. God's people are, are you already know from reading the, the back part that God's going to protect them, but those words are very poignant. All people? Well, how's Israel going to escape? What's going to happen to the promise? Well, through that that blood of the Lamb. And that's really that thing. that that That's going to be, even here, these three woes, if you haven't heard the woes yet, if, you, if this isn't enough to shake you out of your slumber of sin, Man, wake up. These next three are going to be severe, and it's a continual call to repentance and faith to stand uh, firmed uh, in Christ that covered in the blood of the Lamb that you may stand uh, before him uh, on Judgment Day, that God's going to protect his church in such a way, and that's what you see with these next plagues, that God's going to protect his church in such a way that they will still be able to carry out that mission of proclaiming repentance for the forgiveness of sins to all nations. Uh, He's going to protect them so that that happens even in the end before that final and last thing occurs when no one has an opportunity to repent, where the sheep and the goats are forever separated. Yeah, and I, I love the connection you made to the Passover there, because that is the way that the people of God will stand, as we will see in chapter 9. That is the way that God, he marks us as his own, so that those last ones do not harm us, and that brings comfort and hope, even in the midst of hearing the terrible things that happen during these trumpets being blown, that brings us comfort and hope, even in that midst. The Reverend Dr. Adam Philippeck is pastor at Holy Cross and Emmanuel Lutheran Churches, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. He's also the author of the forthcoming book, Life in Christ, Rooted, Woven, and Grafted into God's Story. He has been helping us today to study Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 to 13. Pastor Philippeck, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. Always a pleasure. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about Revelation chapter 8, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.